I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. A very warm welcome to you all on behalf of the London Review Bookshop, um, where tonight we are delighted to welcome two of our best bookshop friends, if I'm allowed to say that, <laughs> truly. Deborah Levy and Olivia Lang. Um, I'm super excited, I'm going to say very little. Our events programme is amazing, you probably know that, and it's only good because people are writing amazing books and people are commissioning and publishing brilliant books. So at this point, I would like to hand over to editor Simon Prosser, who wants to say a few words, as this is the official London launch. So thank you, Claire, for letting me say a few words. I just wanted to do it because... Um, uh, this actually is the launch of the book. It was published last week, um, but this is the first live event. And also this bookshop is especially special to, to all of us. Um, we seem to spend a lot of time here, and they've been such amazing supporters of it. Um, I'm imagining that some people in the room will have read the book already. Is that the case? Well, there are a few. Yeah, there are. So you will know what an absolutely exceptional book this is. Uh, it's a great work of literature, in my view. And... Um, and the response over the last few days to the cost of living has been really um, just... Sometimes you get a very special... Uh, and rare, It's rare enough, but a special tingle of excitement when you really, really know that a book has sort of caught fire in some way, and I really believe this one has. And two friends came over for lunch on Sunday, and um, both women, and they both uh, read it the day before, and literally the moment they walked in the door, they were both saying... This book is just incredible. It says everything that needs to be said about being a woman today. It's a book for the moment. Um, but I would add, it also, um, it also says a lot for men. At least I found it so. And um, while the book certainly is about gender politics, in a sense, or deeply engaged with it, um, it also ultimately is a book about freedom. And it's a book about um, who writes the story of your life. And can you step outside the story that is written for you? Uh, or sketched out for you, and can you write your own? And that's an incredibly liberating thing. And uh, anyone who's read Hot Milk will know that in Hot Milk, the, 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 um, that idea is also present. Um, so it's exceptional, but I would also say the book doesn't stand alone. It's actually part of a project which I think is pretty unparalleled, in, at least among contemporary writers I can think of. Um, the nearest parallel might be Simone de Beauvoir, very different writer stylistically, but someone who's an inspiration to to Deborah and she's very open about it in that Deborah is actually if you look carefully she is writing a sequence of novels um, which is interleaved with a sequence of non-fiction works um, so you have Swimming Home and then you have uh, Things I Don't Want to Know and then you have Hot Milk and now we have The Cost of Living 
And then we're, next year we'll have a novel that you have actually revealed the title of. It's The Man Who Saw Everything. Um, she said that in The Guardian, so I can reveal it. <laughs> so The Man Who Saw Everything will come next year. And then at some point after that, and we have no idea when, I've actually contracted a third instalment of uh, the living autobiography, which is uh, uh, the non-fiction sequence, um, but we know nothing of it yet because it's unwritten and indeed unlived. And it's very exciting <laughs> to see where that will go. So it's wonderful to, to welcome Deborah and to celebrate um, The Cost of Living. It's a, such a marvellous book. And um, to celebrate with us and to talk to Deborah is Olivia Lang, who many of you will know. Uh, obviously known best as a non-fiction writer, most recently The Lonely City, but in fact has now written a novel <laughs> called Crudo, uh, which I've read and I suspect a few others here have read. And it's completely <laughs> terrific novel. It's really great. And in ways it is about freedom too. So I know... You um, I won't say much more about it because it's Deborah's <laughs> night, but it's a fantastic book and out in June, in June. And undoubtedly there'll be a launch here, probably, <laughs> or some event here. But without further ado, please um, welcome Olivia and Deborah, and especially, you know, I give a big round of applause to Deborah for a brilliant book. Thank you. And thank you to Simon Prosser, because actually... He is a legendary publisher. He, the, the third uh, part of the living autobiography, which will be my 60s and onwards, well, I'm not there yet. I think he's the only publisher who, who buy a book from an author who says, well, I don't know what's in it. I, I, I haven't lived it yet. He said, all right. <laughs> Thank you, Simon. <laughs> As he walks out the door. I'm, I'm so completely thrilled to be here tonight and to be introducing Deborah. I think, um, I think all Deborah's books are extraordinary. I think they get inside the world that we live and show us it in uncanny, radiant, strange, remarkable ways. And I think this book in particular is extraordinary for the moment that we're in now. It feels illuminating and it also feels profoundly joyful in a way that I wasn't necessarily expecting when I picked it up. I found it electrifying. I've now read it five times, so I, I very seriously say that you must buy a copy today if you haven't already. Um, the first question I want to ask you is, after decades of writing novels and plays, what made you turn to memoir and what does living autobiography mean? <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's such a long answer, <laughs> In a way, I found the voice for part one uh, things I don't want to know. Um, in, in a very literal way, I was teaching writing at the Royal College of Art, and I was teaching in the animation department with visual artists who were who were really very skilled uh, visually and and, um, and needed some actually needed some writing strengths to write scripts. But what they brought to me were sketchbooks and objects that they've made and pages of writing. So one, one female student had brought in um, a, a whole series of sketches with a female protagonist at the centre of, of a number of scenes with these strange lines coming out of her head. And I said, well, what are those? And she said, um, they're all her bad thoughts. So I said, okay, uh, could you go and write down some of her bad thoughts? You don't have to show them to me. And then uh, draw these again. 
because I knew they would be different. So it's a very odd beginning, I know. And at the same time, this had stuck in my this had, this had stuck in mm. my mind. Those, those those sort of lines, the fact that, in fact, visually they weren't doing the talking for her, but they needed to. So so that just you know that that stayed with me. There was something undisclosed that was important. And then at the same time, I was invited by the Serpentine Gallery. This is this is way back. Um, to give a talk on Cindy Sherman and she had a show it was a very strange show uh, around 2003 of clowns so she had so she she had dressed up as she does to um, to perform for her camera the gaze of her own camera a persona but this time they were clowns and they, they were in these garish wigs, red and green, with um, uh, strange false teeth and, and, and huge prosthetic breasts. And they were very difficult to sort of, it's very difficult to get a grip on that show. And I'd been asked to um, do a Saturday talk where we walk 30, 20 or 30, I was told, people through the show. And we just talk about it. I just talk about it, and other people contribute, and it's an hour. I thought, well, what's not to love? So I had nipped in my lunch hour to uh, the Serpentine, and I planned a route through the show. I will start with this image, and then we'll walk to this room, and we'll look at how that image is in conversation with this one. But what happened was that on the Saturday, um, there weren't 30 people, there were about 120 people. <laughs> <laughs> and I knew that this was going to really be about crowd control and that I, 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 I couldn't take 180 people through to the corridor and I would just have to go into the big room um, and start anywhere because that's where people could stand and see. <laughs> and that meant that everything that was smart that I kind of prepared to say about Cindy Sherman went right down the drain and I just had to focus on an image and begin and the first thing I said after a while was well I don't know what's going on it's as if Cindy Sherman has been kidnapped by the clowns and held hostage and I'm looking for her but I can see her bright eyes coming through all this makeup and and um, but I don't know and that was a very interesting start because it freed everyone else up to also admit they didn't know what was going on and as we walked through the show I discovered that I really liked that I was finding a voice that I didn't know I possessed it it was formal it was intimate. There were pauses. Mm. Uh, there were digressions. Um, and I clocked it way before, way, way before I wrote things I don't want to know. And then there was one other crucial thing that happened, which was that there was a young woman who had um, turned up to, to this talk. And she didn't have a bag. And she had about five or six 
tattered paperbacks in her hand. Because there was a big crowd, she was sort of having to, as we moved around, she was having to um, move around with her books. And at one point, I saw that they were my books and that she was holding about three copies of my first novel, Beautiful Mutants, and three copies of Swallowing Geography, and about two copies of um, a collection of poetry called An Amorous Discourse in the Suburb of Hell. And all those books were out of print. And I was very sad about that. It was a very raw time in that respect. And so I was kind of, I thought, why she bought these books? Maybe she doesn't like them and she's going to throw them at me. <laughs> but at the end, she asked me to sign them. And they were, she lived in a mixed house, she said. And everyone had had a copy of one or the other. And they were all annotated and coffee was spilt on them and beer and wine. And... Um, and one of the things I didn't want to know, mm. but knew, was that I was extremely sad about those books. She, 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 you know, she had sort of been there to, to, to remind me. So years later, when I set about writing um, things I don't want to know, I kept in mind the formal intimacy of that first-person voice. And I remembered that, that amazing woman with those tattered paperbacks. And I brought that atmosphere into part one, where the female narrator says, um, I thought about all the things I had hoped for, and I laughed. The sound of my own cruel laughter made me want to die. So it's not that the narrator wanted to die, it was the sound of her cruel laughter, mocking her own desires, the things that she had hoped for, for herself. So, in the odd way that books begin, um, it all happened about, um, it all happened around there. There are a few writers, I'm realizing, who had a theater training, mm. um, as I did, and they are Emma McBride, uh, Claire Louise Bennett, and Damon Gulgert. And voice, I, I, I'm sort of, I think I believe this, is, 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 is pretty important in, 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 all, in all of these books. And finally, uh, there was an Andy Warhol quote that I loved. It really suited me fine. Mm because it went something like, I can't fall apart, because I've never fallen together. <laughs> so that was on my mind when I, when I started to write the autobiographies. Things I Don't Want to Know started off as, um, as a stretch of writing that I called Weeping Machines, because it's about a woman who, who finds herself in tears every time she's on a on an escalator that's ascending. And the White Review published an extract of that. Mm. And they said, Deborah, is it fiction? Is it an essay? I said, I don't even remember what we put it in as. And then later, uh, Jack Testar 
who was now who was one of the editors and who was now at Notting Hill Editions, mm. called me. Um, Swimming Home had been written and published. And he said, how about an essay? Do you want 27,000 words or 45? You can guess which one <laughs> I chose. And I knew then that things I don't want to know would be my 40s, the cost of living my 50s, and the third one would be my 60s. I'm, well, I'm interested in all of that, but I'm particularly interested in the idea of switching to the eye, but the eye not necessarily being a completely... There's this idea that if you're talking in the first person, you're automatically being completely an authentic reporter of your own experience, and I feel like your eye is much more tremulous and subversive than that. So could you talk a bit about mm. what the first person has done for you, what it's allowed you to do mm. that you weren't able to do in the third person? Yeah. The third person is elegant. It's an aerial view. Um, the first person is a really hard tense to um, tame, mm. in a way. In fact, I've got a piece of I've got a bit of writing about the first person. Can I can I read? Yes. That? Okay. Why don't you? <laughs> My books are cleverer than I am, so uh, they can they can just speak. Yes. So I'm not going to give you any. I'm not just going to dive in. Okay. I became obsessed with my electric bicycle. I had wheels. One night, I rode to a party at least 20 miles away. I whizzed along the roads with my dress flying in the wind behind me. Perhaps my e-bike and my children were my only happiness. When I walked into the party, a tall man with silver hair came to talk to me. He told me he wrote military biographies, mostly about the First World War and asked me to pass him a canapé. <laughs> I was unlacing my trainers to swap for the more glamorous shoes I brought with me and ignored his request, although lifting a canapé off the silver tray would have been a breeze after all the usual heavy lifting. He was tall and thin, possibly in his late 60s, and seemed to desire my company. He talked about his books for a while and how his wife, no name, was unwell at home. He did not ask me one single question, not even my name. It seemed that what he needed was a devoted, enchanting woman at his side to acquire his canopies for him, <laughs> and who understood that he was entirely the subject. What with his silver hair and silver eyebrows, I started to think of him as the big silver. If he stepped out of character and asked me a few questions, what would I actually say to the Big Silver? If he asked the obligatory, so what do you do? I suppose I could see him off by telling the truth. As you've asked, I've spent today engaged with the difficulties of writing in the immediate present tense. It's hard to remain interested in one person's subjectivity. There are tricks to insert other subjectivities into this tense, but it's a challenge. No, I would never begin that kind of conversation with the Big Silver. <laughs> I was rereading the early novels and various essays and interviews by James Baldwin, and his title, 
nobody knows my name, helped me understand why I objected to my male walking companion never remembering the names of women. Same with my best male friend, whose wives were never referred to by their name until he divorced them. <laughs> in an interview with Studs Terkel in the 1960s, Baldwin, talking about race in America, had laid down a challenge. In order to learn your name, you are going to have to learn mine. Yes, I thought. What I should really say to the Big Silver is something like, you are going to have to learn my name so that I can learn yours. He would be mystified. To be frank, I was mystified. It was mysterious. <laughs> Simone de Beauvoir described the second sex as an exposition of the pervasiveness and intensity and mysteriousness of the history of women's oppression. It is so mysterious to want to suppress women. It is even more mysterious when women want to suppress women. I can only think that we are so very powerful that we need to be suppressed all the time. Anyway, like James Baldwin had taught me, I had to decide who I was and then convince everyone at that party that was who I was. But unfortunately, in this phase, I was whistling in the dark. <laughs> that cuts beautifully to a question which I've got, which is, the cost of living is populated by multiple men like this, multiple encounters like this, men who won't look at women, men who won't speak women's names, men who are seemingly completely terrified of women. What was going on in those encounters? What did you make of it? And I know you said <coughs> mysterious, but let's delve a bit deeper. Um, well, that's just really... Uh, there's, there's a sort of coda in the book in which uh, a number of men are described as the big silver. Mm. And um, that's just a way of dramatising something very obvious, mm. as I've said before. It's not, it's, it's, it's not like... It's not like an attack. Mm. It's like saying the world belongs to her too. She comes with a whole life of her own. Now this is so obvious, it's embarrassing to actually have to sort of say this in, in um, <laughs> I'm just trying to remember what century we're in, in the 21st <laughs> century, right? Um, so, so there's a, so there's a, there's a, there's a sort of courteous man on a train who, who there's a 16 year old girl she's sitting teenager she's sitting she, it's the Eurostar she's learning a language she's got earphones in and she's learning French and he basically chases her off the shared table this is nothing new I know you know this but I have to find a way of dramatizing mm. this so she was sitting in a very cramped way with everything off the table to make room for an, his apple and his newspaper and didn't seem to understand um, me when I said very simply, I said, put your computer back on the table. Could you move your newspaper? She's studying. It was as if this, this was absolutely incomprehensible. Mm. But that's just a sort of rhetorical device. It's a, it's a coda for the book. And another coda for the book is a very, very close male friend. Mm. 
um, and, and a long scene, and a long scene there, and a, two very close male friends. Uh, the coda in the book uh, is really, um, so, so those Russian dolls with lots of women inside them. There are lots of women in this book, and they are all inside each other. Mm. And the female narrator is all of those women. I don't mean sort of, you know, um, yeah, in a way, all those women are inside us. So, th so this Russian doll thing is kind of interesting to me because we all start our lives inside a woman anyway. And if we take any one of us, there'll be so many. You know, we have a sister and a mother and somebody who was ki a kind teacher and an unkind teacher. And they all have a part to play in, in, in this very particular structure of this. And the I, Olivia, that you're talking about, I think there's this idea that with, with memoir, you have this sort of blurting I, mm. just blurts. But you leave as much out of a non-fiction as you know, mm. as, you've, as you well know, mm. as you do in, um, in a fiction. And you have to invent an avatar to carry that eye. You have to invent a persona mm. like, like Cindy Sherman to carry the book. But it also seems to me like you're reporting on time in a very complicated way. That again, if we have the idea of the eye that is a straightforward person, that we also have the idea with an autobiography that time moves in this sort of chronological past to present to future way, which I don't think is how most of us experience time. And it seems to me that you've chosen to do very complicated things with the interpolation of the present by the past, mm. including the scene where your younger self comes and walks down the road and enters your house, <laughs> which I yeah. love. Yeah. And that happens in things I don't want to know as well, doesn't it? That there's yes. all the mothers in the park and they're all pursued by their younger selves, their teenage selves, furious that they haven't seized the lives that they thought they would. Mm. Yeah, well... Talk about time. <clears throat> time. Well, that's the hardest thing to pull off in any, in any piece of writing, you know, how, how, how time passes. Um, one of the things that I don't really enjoy about biographies is the way it always starts, more or less, it seems to me, always starts with a child, the subject is a child, and we work through, we've, we, you know, we work through uh, their lives to teenage to this and that, and then we kind of end with them dead. <laughs> They've croaked. <laughs> the lights are off. Um, but as you say, we don't experience time like that. Um, and the past and the present, whether the past is four days ago or four years ago, coexist. Mm. And so how, how to how to work this thing with time in a memoir. Mm. Um, so I'm much more interested in finding literary techniques to have the past chase the female narrator, that is myself, in the present tense. I don't want to sort of um, begin at seven or eight. In fact, there's a line in, in uh, Swimming Home that Nina, the daughter, says that she, she's never really interested when she reads biographies. 
she skips she skips uh, until the subject leaves home and starts to make some decisions <laughs> for herself. So I have the child, mm. the, the South African child, the child born in South Africa, come chase my English self in my 40s. Mm. She does, she knocks on the door of my Victorian um, semi. My English self doesn't want to let her in, not at all, but she does. And this child jumps onto the sofa with my daughters and watches the big bake-off. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. And I'm not going to sort of say what else happens, but... That writing that was, I just couldn't believe I was writing that because it could just fall apart. It's so hard to do. I just told myself, well, I can delete it, you know, it doesn't work. I think it more or less works. Works. Does it? Uh, I mean, you know. But it works so partly sort of because the, the, I know that what you've done technically is extraordinarily difficult. The idea that suddenly this thing is happening in front of you mm. and working is in itself the sort of drama of it. Yes, yes. And so I have her walking down the Holloway Road at nine and um, it's very uncanny. It adds a sort of uncanny palette to, to the work. In things I don't want to know, I do go at some point straight into uh, a very particular time in, in childhood. Uh, so, the, so it's not chronological, not at all. The past and the present coexist in uh, the cost of living at all times. Which slightly, I'm just going to jump ahead because something that I really love about Deborah's work is its ongoing engagement with Freud, which feels like it's been there for as long as I've been reading you. And I feel like people really struggle with Freud at the moment, or not even at the moment, over the last however long. Forever. Forever. Yeah. Why, why should, in particular, 21st century women be engaging with Freud? <laughs> and I think your books answer that, so in some ways you don't need to answer it, but I'd quite like you to. 
Okay, I'm Freud's publicist. <laughs> <laughs> Very good at it. Um, well, Freud, Freud didn't medicate women. He didn't put electrodes on their heads. He didn't put them in straight jackets. Mm. It was called the talking cure. He listened to women mm. and he changed his mind. He, uh, he was a patriarch of his generation. But the talking cure, this is the voice again. He listened. Mm. He, 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 made some, he made some bad moves. Dora, you know, <laughs> he, he, we know he did. But he revised them. He was a genius. He changed, only geniuses change their mind. Because mm. only psychopaths are totally certain, rigid, won't change, won't shift. So, so I mean, that's, that's one reason. But in the cost of living, really, Olivia, the main thing going on while I was writing it is it, it felt very important to really document the domestic arrangements that were in, being put into place to make a new structure mm. for another sort of life. And um, I didn't really know why. I knew it was political. Mm. And I had no idea whether it would be of interest to anyone else. Well, there we go. So it's about making a new composition. And I don't know how Freud fits into that, except that he's, there are lots of Freud books on my bookshelves, and a lot of the Nias Nin as well. <laughs> so, Good um, combination. They sort of, they, they sort of side by side. Shall I read a bit more? Yes. Okay. Do you mind me not just sort of giving you any context? I'm very polite. I'm going to stand up. So I'm just going to go into some. Ooh, I'm just going to go into some of the really hard-hitting bits, okay? Because I mean, why not? So there's something. There's always something quite gentle. As a before we go into something with a punch. That's something I like very much to do. The moody politics of the modern home had become complicated and confusing. There were many modern and apparently powerful women I knew who had made a home for everyone else but, not, but did not feel at home in their family home. They preferred wherever they worked because they had more status than being a wife. Orwell, in his 1936 essay, Shooting an Elephant, noted that the imperialist wears a mask and his face grows to fit it. The wife also wears a mask and her face grows to fit it in all its variations. Some women who were the main earners in their family were being slyly punished by their men for any success they had achieved. Their male partners had become resentful, angry and depressed. As de Beauvoir had told us, women are not supposed to eclipse men in a world in which success and power have been marked out for them. It's not easy to take up the historic privilege of dominance over women with a modern twist if he is economically dependent on her talents. At the same time, she receives the fatal message that she must conceal her talents and abilities in order to be loved by him. 
They know they are both lying to save his face, which has also grown to fit the mask. His eyes stare through the peepholes, fearful the world will find him out. He knows the mask of the patriarchy is abnormal and perverse, but it is useful to protect him from being wounded. At its most decorated, it is there to appear to help him appear to be rational, while he intimidates women, children, and other men. Above all, sorry, it is there to protect him from the anxiety of failure in the eyes of other men. If a man is considered successful because he succeeds in suppressing women at work, at home, in bed, it would be a great achievement to be a failure in this regard. <laughs> I was going to ask you about Simone de Beauvoir anyway, but I'm struck with that section about what, why haven't we moved on? These, are, these revelations feel at once completely new and same as it ever was. Of course we know that. It's Feminism 101, and yet it feels like you're saying something urgent and insightful about something that's held in secrecy. I find it very hard to understand how those two things can be true at the same time. They are. They are. Uh, we we have they moved are. on, and we haven't moved on. <laughs> but we're still shocked hugely. by the information. We, we've, we've, we've actually moved on hugely. But we sort of live with that paradox. I think it's a, it's, it's, it's a good time. Um, one of the really interesting books is Rebecca Solnit's uh, The Mother of All Questions. And what she talks about is, in her view, major violence done to women is, <coughs> is to silence them. That's the thing. And that's what this book is about. You know, I'm not going to be silent about this experience of, of dismantling a home and creating, creating a new one, a, 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 making a new composition. Um, so, uh, so where we have moved on is mm. I think that silence is, 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 is breaking. We have Lara Fagel here. Uh, his amazing book, Doris Lessing, which is, is also part, a, you know, part a memoir, uh, Free Woman. Uh, we have Jacqueline Rose on motherhood. Mm. We have your amazing Crudo. <laughs> I mean, there, there are very many books coming up, coming out at this moment. It seems it seems it seems to be uh, a good time mm. for. Um, it's not. No one is hushing for the patriarchy. It's not hush hush for the patriarchy. Don't upset anyone. Don't upset them. Um, and Solnit is is particularly good mm. on that subject. So that when when a man sort of punches out his woman, he wants to above all silence her. Get her to shut up. And um, but that's not happening. We're not going to. I've, as, as I've been thinking about this, I've been reading through lots of Deborah's previous novels, and it, it seems to me that the question that's specifically articulated in this book is something that's been propelling you for years, which is, what is the cost of freedom? And 
is it worth it? Is it worth the price? And the price, as you write about in your father's experience, can be terrible. The cost exacted can be terrible. And I want to add something to this, actually, which uh, struck me on rereading this. What's the relationship between freedom and kindness? Because this is a book that's so populated by kindnesses, all kinds of small kindnesses. I don't think there's any point in writing from anything but a position of love. Because love is so much more subversive than hate. There's nothing to lose if you hate. It's all so much riskier if you write from a position, as you know, mm. um, I, I don't want, yeah, I was just going to talk about Crudo for a bit, but, <laughs> but, 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 this, but this is a subject that Olivia explores as well. So love's much more subversive, there's, there's, there's more to risk. Mm. Um, I'm not in the business of being unkind. Um, the cost of freedom, well, yeah, uh, but it's better really not to die of safety. Like that parakeet in Things I Don't Want to Know, that you keep <laughs> rescuing. Yeah, um, that would be my answer. As for freedom, um, you know, there are other people who, 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 who are better equipped to, to really talk about massive political struggles mm. for freedom. It's, uh, Olivia's alluding to my own parents who were involved in the struggle for human rights and democracy in apartheid South Africa. But as a writer, really, the, the, the biggest freedom is uh, not to write with a closed mind. Words, words have to open the mind. That's what language, in my view, mm -hmm. is there to do. What's its purpose? That. It's there, it's, it's there to give more dimensions to the things we think we know. Um, and that'll do. That is, that, that, is a, a, that is a kind of freedom. And so part of, part of the search for freedom in my book, I'm also, I'm also, there's also a sort of quest for a, female, for a major unwritten female character in this book. Um, but part of that quest is in the writing itself. Mm. A really free, and I mean, no writing actually, don't get me started, I'm such a nerdy <laughs> writer. And no writing is entirely free, but, but that, that project of actually being able to open windows with language and perhaps even jump out, you know, um, and see where you land. On that note, I feel like <laughs> you can all speak up now. You don't have to be in silence yeah. anymore. Because you don't have to ask a question. You can just have a thought. Does anyone have a question? Mm. They do. We just need someone to not be shy. Start it off. Mm. Thank you. Deborah, you mentioned theatre where you started your training. Seems to me in your writing you have used that structure quite a lot. Is that significant in your approach to the day's writing? Theatre form? Um, I think that what my theatre training did, so, so it wasn't to be an actress, to write plays. And it actually, um, a theatre training is quite an interesting word for the sort of training I had because it was really a training in avant-garde contemporary arts, right through dance, theatre, visual art, 
writing, all the rest of it. But if you do write for theatre and performance, you have to embody ideas. You have to, um, uh, you know, actors are going to are going to speak and move and do things, and um, so I that that is I think mostly what I took from that training. How do you embody an idea? So so for example, in Hot Milk. As a psych, there's a mother who has psychosomatic pains. Perhaps, what's wrong with her? So her body, her body is sort of speaking for her, sort of saying some of the awkward and shaming things that she herself can't say. And I have to try and embody that in some way. Um, very hard character, quite hard character to write, Rose. You know. That's the theatre training, and it's also very visual. I mean, very visual theatre. So objects and place, and um, and the psychic edge of everything, absolutely everything, um, which you will get in the theatre because it's lit, because there's music, because there's there's silence, because there's speech. Uh, yeah, I think I, I, I pulled on all of that. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Um, this is a thought rather than a question. Yeah. Um, so Mr. Prosser had said that you um, are alternating your living memoirs with fiction. Yeah. And I wondered whether um, in doing the living memoir, which in which you come very close to yourself, um, if that, and, and with all the undertones that you've got your humour but the great undertones of grief of losing love of of losing your mother and I wondered whether in a sense in writing that you're kind of I was trying to think of the right verb but expunging um, I don't know if that's the right verb but expunging emotions from you in order to set you free <coughs> so that when you write your fiction you can come at it from a a non-personal you direction, if you know what I mean. I wondered if there was, a, it's just a wondering, if there was any element of yeah, that Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a, a, f a fair question. Um, I don't think that, it, it, for, for myself, uh, may, maybe other writers would work differently. It works like that. Um, it, I, I'm not sure that... Um, I want to read about a soul laid bare, you know that that that, that phrase. And, I, and I'll tell you why. It's not that you, it's, it's it's not that you don't read a lot of truth, hard fought for truths in a book. But it's, if if in in a fiction or in a non-fiction, a soul is laid bare. There's nothing for the reader to find out. So that's that's where I am on that. Um, and alas, I don't think like writing about the death of my mother was cathartic. <laughs> I, wish, I mean, it might be for some uh, other kinds of writers. No, not really. Um, it's cathartic to swim and to talk with friends and to cry a lot and to walk. Uh, the writing is there to, to do something else. You know, the, the, the writing about my mother's death, I suppose was going to uh, bring to the surface questions that I've been asking um, myself for, for, for many years. Like, you know, 
Um, I'm just going to refer you. So I, I, this isn't long, I promise you, but um, there's, there's something here. There's a photograph I've kept of my mother in my late 20s. She's sitting on a rock at a picnic with friends. Her hair is wet because she's had a swim. There's a kind of introspection in her expression that I now relate to the very best of her. I'm not sure that I thought introspection was the best of her when I was a teenager. What do we need dreamy mothers for? We do not want mothers who gaze beyond us, longing to be elsewhere. We need her to be of this world, lively, capable, entirely present to our needs. Did I mock the dreamer in my mother and then insult her for having no dreams? Change it that way. Yeah. Um, Deborah, thank you very much. Um, the first word that comes to mind when I think of your writing is generosity. And you write in this book about being granted uh, a space to write in by another woman. And you mentioned earlier tonight about making a man make some space for a young woman. And I'm in a very activist frame of mind recently, and I'm wondering if you could say something a bit more about paying kindness forward and generosity forward and kind of um, helping other women. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean... Thanks. You can do that. And I think we, 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 all, of us, we all of us do this, and, and many men this actually too um, I don't really I, I, I can't answer that in an abstract way but I can talk about um, a part of my book in which uh, the narrator I always say the narrator who is myself <laughs> do you think I should just say myself or do you like that little bit of distance <laughs> what do you think you like the distance? Oh, excellent. <laughs> we keep, we'll keep that running now. Um, the narrator, who is myself, sees one of her students, students in a park, and they have a conversation. And um, the student has, has written something really quite good, except that every time her voice becomes truly powerful, she makes a joke, she writes in a joke to kind of undermine uh, what she's just written. And the narrator, who is myself, um, <laughs> pulls her up on this and says, okay, you can take, take all of that out, take all that undermining out of the writing and, s and see what happens. And what happens is that her own voice becomes incredibly powerful. And she's scared of, she's actually scared of her own power. And she starts to cry because um, I have told her that she has an abundance of talent. Now that's not being kind, that's just being truthful. But um, how we, so, so, so I guess my point is have to listen. You just sort of have to listen and say, "Don't do that," or "Do this." Um, another, another, you know, don't, don't, don't undermine the truths that you have tried to untangle. 
Um, don't undermine them. Claim them. Claim everything you desire. Just claim it. Go for it. Make mistakes. Mess up. You're allowed to. Go mad. You're allowed to. Um, take that sort of freedom. You, that those are the sort of freedoms you can take to improvise, to not know as much as, as as much as to know. Just to not know. Why not? My my question follows on from that. You mentioned Freud earlier, um, and you mentioned his value to, to us as women, how he, he listened to us. And it, it seems to me that what he was listening to was women's unruly thoughts that they could hardly bear to utter. They were sort of bawdy, they were incestuous, they were angry, they were enraged, they were, they were muttered. Sometimes they were written on the body and not linguistic at all. So I'm thinking, you're saying, I think, he valued our unconscious. So I want to ask you, do memoirs or novels give your unconscious freer play? Or is there an equal unconscious conversation going on between your novels and your memoirs? Or is one in some way the subtext or the unconscious of the other? I mean, it's very fascinating, isn't it, this relationship? Okay, cosmic question. You have three minutes starting from now. Your start of the ten. So that's the great writer, Michelle Roberts, ladies and gentlemen. Um, yeah. Do you know I don't use the word unconscious anymore? Okay, you're left on. <laughs> no. no I'm, 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 I'm sort of wondering why, because it, it's kind of misunderstood as, as, um, as, a, as a sort of, in, in the way that streams of consciousness are sort of misunderstood. But I know exactly what you're saying. I don't think that the unconscious uh, has a freer reign in in memoir or, or, or autobiography. In fact, I think it has a freer reign in fiction. Uh, but what they share, in, in I guess, in the way that I approach them, is that everything is connected to everything else. So in the ecology of, la of, of language, everything is connected to everything else. And so um, the task, really, is to is, to, is for the mind's associative faculties to really be stimulated, to really be going hell for leather on a good, on a good writing day. Um, so, uh, absolutely equal. I think, I, I think, I don't think writing memoir is, is, is all that different from writing fiction. It's the same questions. Who wants what, and what's stopping them getting it? Hmm. Um, my question's relating to what you were saying about silencing women before. Um, and Virginia Woolf spoke about killing, having to kill the angel in the house to, um, in order to write. And that was for her, her sort of Victorian mother. But it was essentially a sort of internalised patriarchal censor, which she had to kill. Yeah. She was about throwing the ink pot at her. Um, I was wondering whether you had to sort of go through a process of killing the angel in the house in order to um, get over that sort of fear of upsetting men in your writing. Hmm. Sometimes, 
But I didn't think that was, I, didn't, I, I certainly didn't feel that was the major atmosphere in the, way, in the way that I worked. I think I've always been fairly ruthless about my own writing space and writing time. Um, killing the angel in the house. No, I think that instead of a room of one's own, we really need extension leads to plug our computers in everywhere. <laughs> wow. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you all for being here. Thank you for your questions. Thank you, Deborah, as you alluded to before, for not being silent. Thank you so much. Um, Olivia as well. Thank you so much. I can't think of anyone better to have talked to Deborah tonight. Um, come and buy some books. We'll move some chairs out of the way. We'll put the air conditioning on because you've been very good. Um, <laughs> thank you so much. Get up in a minute, but please give it up for Deborah Levy and Olivia Lang. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.